Welcome to Think About This. I'm Alexis Dean, and I am so glad you're here. For years, I've been building a community of high-performing, high-impact, wildly generous, and supportive entrepreneurs. I've made a lot of introductions between incredible people, and I always wish that I could learn from the conversations that take place after those introductions. On this show, you and I will get to be part of the conversation as I bring together two successful entrepreneurs for peer-to-peer support and discussions that normally happen behind closed doors. Listen in as we solve fascinating business challenges with lessons and ideas that apply across industries. Get ready to learn, expand, and grow. This is the Think About This podcast, brought to you by the Dovetail community. This week's problem we're tackling How do you build a physical product from idea to seeing it on the shelves of stores around the world? I talk to so many entrepreneurs who have product ideas to add to their existing businesses. And a lot of them wonder, how hard could it possibly be? Just come up with a tool or a resource or a gadget, pay someone to make it, have someone make a lot of it, and put it on your website. I don't think it's that easy. Today's episode was a deep dive into what it would take to build a tech product. But a lot of the lessons that I learned today would apply to creating any sort of physical product from scratch. Today's guests are Derek and Lindsay Padilla and Bradley Abbott. Derek and Lindsay are the founders of Hello Audio, which takes your content and creates private audio feeds. A few weeks ago, Lindsay shared on Facebook that she was looking for someone to help her create a specific and simple sounding adapter gadget to make her life easier when trying to record from Clubhouse. So I reached out to the best guy I know for taking a concept from idea to execution to the shelf at a store near you. And that's Bradley Abbott. Bradley is an anomaly. He's an ambidextrous brain developer. His talents lie in both art and science. Bradley is equally adept at recognizing and honing aesthetic embodiment as he is at untangling and simplifying the math, science, and engineering which make for optimal, well-thought-out products. I've spent a bit of time with Bradley, and I know that he is definitely armed with an IQ north of genius a nearly inexhaustible energy supply, and an imagination capable of near prescience. And he lives to create solutions to problems that improve the lives and experience of others. His obsessive need to problem solve leads to results which are finely crafted around relevant constraints and goals. His zero bullshit attitude eliminates misunderstandings and ensures a direct, straightforward path to the solutions that he provides. Bradley lives to create. It is his purpose. Solving problems and creating solutions is what he believes the universe shaped him for. He is the founder of Anomalous Creations, formerly Connectable Designs, where he and his team take wild ideas from concept to full development of phenomenal products in your hands. Dr. Lindsay Padilla is an ex-community college prof who accidentally started a business while on the tenure track. Now, as the CEO and co-founder of the Hello Audio software, which takes your content and creates private audio feeds to make learning on the go much easier for your people, Lindsay challenges online industry norms of unfinished courses and unconsumed content with her product. All of her business ideas were born out of her tenure track years teaching adults online at community college. The ridiculous amount of learning that she's done in all things education and the years spent growing her course creation business online. When she's not thinking about her SaaS company, Lindsay loves to walk her dog, paint, and read. Dr. Derek Padilla is Lindsay's partner and he's a past physics professor, forever educator, and musician based in San Diego. His current focus is head of product at helloaudio.fm, co-founded with Lindsay and Nora Siddeth. Lindsay and Derek have been married for 10 plus years. His superpower is explaining complicated concepts simply. He's at like tortilla on social media. 
By the end of today's conversation, you'll have a better understanding of what it takes to bring an idea to life as a product. And you'll learn what you need to think about if you're considering adding a product to your business. Let's dive in. So Lindsay and Derek, I'd love it if you could kick it off by letting us know what is the challenge you're working through or the question that you have right now in your business? We have an idea for a physical product that is electronic in nature, (laughs) kind of like an adapter. (laughs) You notice I'm the one explaining this and Derek will actually get into the nuances of it. But I just had this question of like, okay, when you get an idea for something, and it doesn't exist out in the world yet um, with all your research, you know, how do you go from making the thing happen, uh, literally make the product and then, you know, you know, warehouse it, all the, all the things that come to that and then like get it and, and start selling it. So from that physical product idea all the way through like manufacturing as somebody who's been in digital courses and and in this online space, I can just kind of be like, oh, I'm going to create this thing. I'm going to launch this course who wants it. And then you just make it. This felt very foreign to me and I wasn't exactly sure how to do it. So I posted on Facebook and Alexis was like, Hey, I think I know somebody that might be able to help you. Yeah. I think we both, uh, me and Lindsay have been in business for a few years now where everything can be done with a keyboard and mouse. And then this is the first like, Mm. okay, this can't be just created with code or hiring a developer, you know, in, you know, a couple time zones away to take our idea and turn it into something that we can then sell en masse with scalability, you know, very small scalability issues. And now it's like, this is a physical, tangible object. I don't even, I don't know the first thing to get that completed and produced and, um, yeah, sold, delivered. How does it go from my brain into somebody's desk? So, and it's funny because you guys probably without even realizing it are, are hinting around it, or maybe it's just, I see the red Volkswagen because somebody said red Volkswagen to me at some point, there's a name for that effect, but there's a process, right? And mm-hmm. that process varies greatly by developers. Um, and, and I can even diverge a little further than that, just to make it clear, the process by which you bring a thing uh, to life and to market as it varies between different developers is a function of what they specialize in, right? Mm. So traditionally, the cost, the barrier to entry to take an idea and bring it to life, manufacture it and put it in someone's hands um, and everything in between that um, that is necessary to to do it properly, so to speak, to ensure that you have minimal risk and maximum value and all of those things that obviously as a business, uh, injecting a product into market, not just as a human who sees a problem they want to solve, but through the lens of a business who wants to generate a revenue and turn a profit from this activity. What you see as a process is a function of usually what the individual provider um, specializes in. And so there are some providers that have a more turnkey sort of, you know, all in-house under a roof methodology. Very few of them. Um, I find that um, our particular niche is that, A, we don't have a niche. We work with every kind of product, but also that our work methodology is agnostic um, to the thing being developed as a function of the extremely wide range of things that we're capable of doing that are within that set of necessities, prerequisites, so to speak, before you're able to manufacture and land something in someone's hand. Uh, Traditionally, what you would have to do as a person with an idea is go find each of the people, the individual niche specialties, and work with them stage by stage, Mm. not only 
um, to do the thing that they specialize in, but then also to um, project manage the entire thing, the handoff of uh, the thing that is at a given stage, specialty to specialty to specialty, right? And so just to give you a, a top level for those listening, traditionally you would go first to an industrial designer who's someone that can produce conceptual level um, overviews of what a thing is and what it does. And perhaps to some degree at a, at a blue sky or conceptual level, how it can achieve those things, right? Um, they're really not making determinations on the, the nuance, the granularity of how it can do that from an engineering or physics or reality-based standpoint. They're just saying, here's what it can look like. Here's the things, the things that it does to solve a given problem. You explain to them the, the nature of the solution that you've come up with an idea for and the nature of the problem that it solves. And then they go about sort of crafting what is a conceptual embodiment of that. Um, but they're not capable of working out the engineering of how many pounds of pressure it takes to crush this thing in a given, you know, engineering scenario. <laughs> it's not what industrial designers do. So you have to then take that, what they end up with, their work product, their conceptual overview, you have to take that to an engineering firm. And that engineering firm, the type and specialty of that engineering firm is critical to um, best possible result with respect to whatever that product is, whether it's a piece of consumer electronics or it's a, uh, you know, a food product or some sort of piece of art, irrespective of what it is, you've got to go find an engineering firm that specializes in that particular thing. Mechanical engineering, electronic engineering, electric, which is not the same thing as electronic engineering, physics, biochemistry, marine biology, doesn't matter. You have to go find an engineer that is capable of and probably more than one, sussing out all of the necessary math and science related to tangibly making this conceptual thing actually capable of doing what you need it to do. So you go and you find those engineers and when they're done with their work, obviously they're not gonna build it because they're engineers, they design things, right? So you take that engineering design and then you have to go find somebody to physically build it in a one-off format. This is normally the place where people come to me and they say, we built a rough prototype and now we need to manufacture it. And they've skipped all that stuff that I just mentioned, <laughs> okay? And there are even prerequisites that I'll get to in a minute that really should be done even before those, the, the industrial design. But let's say you're at the engineering phase and you've completed it. Now you've got to go find somebody who's familiar with building this thing. Well, no factory is interested in building you one of something. Sorry, but that's not what they do. Their entire business model and thus their mentality is built on large scale production of a thing with the minimization of problems, maximization of non-failed units produced. And that is how they calculate their profit margin, right? We turn out a million units, 50 of them fail. We can't charge for those. We have to go through all the work and time and effort to ramp up and build this thing en masse in the most efficient way possible because that's how they make their money, right? Their margin is a function of the efficiency at which this thing happens in large scale, okay? They're not interested in building you one. And so many people, especially traditionally, would attempt to go out and find a factory, which now you're talking about cultural barriers because manufacturing most things in the United States is not feasible. That's a whole nother uh, podcast. Very frustrating, getting better, but definitely still a problem and has been traditionally. Um, you're talking about language and cultural and also industrial and professional barriers, things that you don't understand about how manufacturing works. There, uh, there's a misalignment of what your desired end results are and what their desired end results are. And so all of these bastardized versions of trying to get an alignment there have cropped up over the years where factories say, well, we can do your engineering design in-house and you end up going to them. But again, they're not interested in engineering you a perfect product like an engineering firm. And so you, you find that stage by stage by stage, you end up with these disparities between each provider that leave you essentially in a hole between each stage, not really sure where to go next. And you can't see the forest because you're standing in a hole, right?
once you climb out of it, if you've got the, the wherewithal to climb out of the hole and figure out where you're supposed to be next, you get to the next person. Somebody prototypes it. You find a prototyping house. They specialize in one-off builds. They build the thing for you. And it doesn't work like you thought it would work. And now what? Do we go back to the engineering firm? Because if we do, they're going to go, well, you gave us a concept design from that guy, and we engineered it around that, and it's not working because of him. And you're going to go back to him, and he's going to go, I'm not an engineer. I created a concept design. It's their job to figure out how to make that work. And everybody's doing this, and you're going with an empty wallet, right? So this is the barrier to entry that has, a, that has existed um, you know, for time, all time, right? To bringing an idea to market. It's getting easier because companies are becoming more um, integrated and they're a little more vertically integrated in the sense that they can provide more of these specialties as a group in a turnkey service set. But to be frank, there's not many companies out there that do most of these things very well. I personally think that's where we shine, our cross-sectional and diverse range of experience and knowledge on a variety of projects allows us to kind of know um, what's required at the outset of a project to make those determinations. And that's something that people need to know. If you take anything from that 20 minute tirade I just went on, it's know what the required resources and skill sets are before you ever begin blueprint. Who will I need to bring this thing to life, right? What do I not know about what I don't know? And start talking with someone about your given idea what is required in it from a resource standpoint and what skills, specialty skills will be required along the way to manufacturing, right? Before you ever engage anyone, figure out what resources you'll need and start identifying who and what, where you might find those resources. Engage those people and talk with them, set up a call, tell them we're very early in the process, but we're considering engaging you. What of these other resources that we have defined so far um, in a, you know, an overview brief of the required resources to reach the end result, um, are you capable of providing and at what cost? Then you can, once you've done that and taken the time to research and really understand what your needs are, you will be much more capable of assessing on the fly as you go, whether or not those things are being done properly and whether or not you need to engage other specialists with respect to everything from the relationship to their capabilities, right? You can much more easily assess what it is you're trying to do as a function of having it happen. Bradley, I'd like to just jump in there and I want to make this as specific as possible for Lindsay and Derek. And I know we didn't really touch on exactly what it is that you want to build. Um, I know there are some concerns about uh, potentially confidentiality around there, but if you're not open to sharing the exact thing that you're building, could you sort of give Bradley an idea of maybe at least the, the type of item this might be? I can be much more specific with respect to this particular product and what those stages and specialties might be. I was just going to say, like, I love that because I don't think even just painting a picture of like the different stages for everybody listening is important because as Derek will share, we might be able to skip some of those, <laughs> some of those steps, but just knowing all of them, I think, I think is good. Well, Bradley was saying, don't skip them. So. Don't well, but <laughs> well, you, well, you could actually build the prototype based on what we're starting with is, is the difference. What you I think. don't need. It's yeah. important to know what you do and don't need. Right. And actually this is probably a perfect opportunity for me to say this without ranting too long, but my work methodology is agnostic and it's built that way intentionally. It's built to be this sort of wireframe of things that pretty much anything from an app to a vape to a food product would need from a core standpoint of development that I think should happen. And I think they should happen not cart before the horse, right? But you can flesh it out. The core stages are really what's important. It's research and comprehension. I'm not going to dive into the details of what each of these are yet. I will, as you would ask, but research and comprehension then concepting, industrial design, typically it's called, 
then engineering, then prototyping, then revision and testing. And that mm -hmm. happens cyclically, right? Engineering, testing, prototyping, and revision all happen in a, in a cyclical fashion until things are perfect. Then engagement for manufacturing, location of a factory and build, the manufacturing process itself, then in blended logistics. That's the core. That's, that's all of the stages. And everything you need to do, irrespective of what kind of product you have, can fall under one of those categories. And if you follow that framework, you'll find that sometimes in engineering, you have a question about whether or not a thing will work that you really can't do easily digitally and have um, a relative degree of certainty it will work. And so you jump out of engineering and you do some small prototyping thing to test it, to see if it will work. You order some off the shelf components and make sure they work properly as you'd expect them to, that they fit properly. The tolerances might be right. You can jump out right at the proper places to test the thing that is actually ahead of you in the that whole cart before the horse metaphor, but to make sure that what you're delineating as you go in an efficient way will work as intended to the degree necessary that you're not reaching sort of that point of diminishing returns, right? As a, as a function of value and the efficiency of this thing. My entire methodology is built around bootstrapping. You, you can take this methodology and develop anything with it and ensure that you're doing it as efficiently as possible while also giving things the commensurate amount of time that they take to do them properly. Kind of like we talked about earlier. Not getting hung up on timeframes and timelines is key. Most people will set out a timeline and say, well, this is how long it needs to take and we need to be at this point on this day. Don't let yourself get so bogged down in the timeline itself that you start skipping things that are important mm -hmm. just simply to stay on a timeline. If the timeline is what's most important, great. I say get out of the products business. If you want to bring a product to market that is as optimized as it can be within reason, okay, there is a point of diminishing returns. It is important to have the clear expectation on your part as the creator of this thing that the amount of time it will take cannot be accurately predicted from the beginning because you have no idea what hurdles you will hit along the way or how long each of those hurdles will take to solve. Sometimes you hit a hurdle, you can go around it and work on other things and come back to it later. Sometimes that hurdle is so fundamental to the following processes that you must work through it first. And it's unknown how long it will take to work through that hurdle. Whether you go around it, over it, or blow it the up, you have to figure out how to get, you know, move beyond that hurdle. So those are the stages, the core stages, research, concepting, engineering, prototyping, testing and revision, manufacturing and logistics. If you work through that framework and properly flesh out each thing that has to happen in those stages and you do them intelligently, it doesn't matter what you're developing. A bomb, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what you are building is obviously related to your primary business, right? And this is a question I get a lot because I have, I work with entrepreneurs that have businesses or have exited businesses and they come up with a great idea and they want to build something. They want to create something. They want to have something tangible in hand uh, beyond what is often their service-based business, their online business. And that's, I'm guessing, I actually know, but we might not <laughs> divulge the full details, but what you're dealing with is related to Hello Audio, correct? Yeah, I can answer that. Um, so Hello Audio is essentially a podcast hosting service that does more for different people than podcasters. And a big tenant of our philosophy of the business is just get audio into, get everything possible into audio as easily as possible. And we hit a snag with uh, Clubhouse recently and it became a hardware snag, which I didn't realize was going to be the snag. And so I started looking for a hardware solution to that problem. And it as far as I can tell, doesn't exist. I'm, it must exist somewhere because it's not that complicated. So you mean you mean that a brand new novel platform has problems? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. They took they made a choice to um, 
basically not allow microphones to be used if they're plugged in via USB, if there's another speaker on the stage with you in Clubhouse. they okay. It works. If I'm by myself, I can use my nice sounding mic on my iPhone in Clubhouse and just talk and it sounds good. The second I tested it and I thought I solved it. And then I brought Lindsay into the room like, oh, does it sound good? And then the second she came up on the stage, it killed my mic. I'm like, oh, they're actually making a choice in software to disable that. So they'd still have to support the little white earbuds that have the the normal you know plug headphone plug adapter thing and so that's a way to get a good sounding mic in there if you can attach about, to that what pin about mic on a, what about a mic on attached bluetooth devices if you're using earbuds does it it uses that it, mic yeah and w one of the solutions could be a bluetooth connection to how like would a, it a know? exactly how would yeah. it know what type of bluetooth device you have attached exactly have you, yeah have you tried to work around this by using an external uh, bluetooth dongle no, and I don't, the, I couldn't figure out how to get the iPhone to talk to one sound source and a different mic source. And I couldn't get the two of them together on one Bluetooth thing. So I've, never tried it, I've never tried it on iPhone, but I suspect that you should be able to use a Bluetooth mic with your iPhone, an external Bluetooth mic, and you can use an agnostic Bluetooth dongle. I would try that first just to see what kind of quality yeah. you get and how Clubhouse performs in that particular stack scenario to see, you know, how, how it works, but yeah, I bet I, it would totally sound better. And I know it's possible. The tech solution exists because the Rodecaster pro does it for 600 bucks. You can buy this fancy box that lives in your desk and you can connect all this stuff to it. And it talks to the iPhone through the headphone jack, um, which is great. So it's, it's possible, but there's not an easy way to use a cheaper than $600 box to make so that happen. It just has a line level output and it just yep. plugs into the headphone jack on your phone if you're so lucky to have a headphone jack on your well, phone. Well, yeah, you can use the little lightning adapter and that little, it's the, yeah. So in short, it's, it's an adapter that would run from your iPhone, the lightning port to the little headphone dongle. That first adapter exists. We're not going to touch that. The other end of it though would be basically, I'm holding up for the listeners a little couple inch long adapter that has the proper ports, the proper pins on the TRRS cable to talk to it. And it allows you to plug in an audio source. It can't get the, the sound source from an external audio source, whatever your laptop, an MP3 player. It can't talk to the microphone of the phone properly. I can't get both to talk at the same time. I can solve it going one way in. I can sol solve it going one way out, which is off the shelf stuff. But there as far as I can tell, there's nothing that is both. And so that's that's where we started trying to find a solution. I would have to research it, but there may be an intentional limitation built into iPhone that prevents you from doing that. Um, and it yeah. may also be a limitation of the, the lightning connector itself. It may not be, it may not support that. I got to tell you though, I personally, as a designer, think that optimally, if a solution is created optimally, it should be as simple and transparent and easy to use with respect mm -hmm. to the problem it solves for the end user as it can be. And I, I have to wonder if you can't get um, if you could not create a very simple uh, Bluetooth adapter that is a mic, right? A mic mm -hmm. that the Bluetooth in that is specifically designed to solve this problem and branded around it. Because although Clubhouse is sort of the leader right now in this particular space, I don't think that this space is going to stay as small as it is no. for very long. There are going to be competitors crop up. And if you were to create a solution that is geared toward this problem, I think that the size of your market with respect to the end user is going to grow inherently just because of the popularity of it. Um, and, and you would have a product that essentially your market opportunity is going to grow even after you release the product. If you design it properly to be mm -hmm. agnostic enough to the platform of use, um, that's the solution to the problem. I yeah. think that 
if you just leverage Bluetooth, then you get away from all of the hardware limitations. You get away from the difficulty of use. Everybody knows how to pair a Bluetooth device to their phone um, and all phones support it. And frankly, as you have already said, it, it seems as though Clubhouse really would have, or any app like it, would have no ability to discern whether or not you're using standard AirPods, for example, or a, an external Bluetooth mic. It's like there's an opportunity here from a features and functionality standpoint to yeah. create a problem much simpler to use, solves the problem at large, and solves it in a much more modular and agnostic way. Rather than having to work with all these different connectors and adapters and users don't want to do that. You just said TRRS. I know what that is. Mm -hmm. 70% of people, unless they are familiar with audio equipment, have no idea what the difference between TRS and TRRS is. Right. But they don't know. Right. Yeah. Having to explain that, yeah, you can do some education, but why? If you can eliminate that by design, eliminate the need hmm. for that, why not? And think of the additional added, I mean, frankly, this does add some complexity, right? If you're doing a wire, purely wireless solution. However, the solution that it creates with respect to transparency, ease of use, simplicity, mm -hmm. agnosticism to platform, modularity, all of those things drastically, I think, outweigh the, the upfront cost and complexity on the design side as a function of the massively simpler, cleaner, more modular and agnostic solution that it creates. Um, if you think about it, is a problem in more than just scenarios like Clubhouse. I have this problem. I shoot photo, I shoot video. There's all of these various different connectors and dongles and bullshit that I have a whole drawer full of. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking right now with one mic that is not my microphone connected to my, my uh, camera. And I'm recording on a different device over, it's a pain in the ass. Um, if I had an agnostic mic that was very simple and USB could connect to my phone, I could do everything we're doing right now. And I could literally just have my phone sitting here doing this mm. same conference on my phone. And it would be as easy as pulling out my Bluetooth mic and setting it right in front of my phone, have a device that could be used cross platform much more in a more streamlined way. Yeah. Two things. One, uh, that Rodecaster Pro box, it does Bluetooth connection to phones. And I know that people use it for that. It costs huh. $600. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So it's like, I'm taking the Roadcaster Pro, which is expensive as hell, and then pulling out it the little parts. It does too much stuff. It does way too much stuff for most, for most people. Exactly. Yeah. So like, this is useful. Let's make a separate product that does that uh, standalone. Exactly. What you're, looking, what you're looking at is a problem to which there are solutions that are infeasible for the given target consumer base. The, the inherent elements of the solutions that exist eliminate them as solutions. Yeah. Right. I like what you're thinking, Bradley, about the not being uh, Clubhouse because there's so much audio content coming. And I don't know what Facebook's going to protect. I, Facebook, Reddit, LinkedIn, Twitter, literally every single one is going to be building some aspect of what they call social audio, which allows people to show up at the same time and hang out and, you know, chat. So the idea that we could create something that helps our market record audio in all these different places and then we host it <laughs> and distribute it and create relationships with listeners that's what our product does it's like it's like answering a front-end creation problem so i like that your brain went right to how can it be used by potentially anybody instead mm -hmm. of i think what you've done is quadruple or, or quintuple the number of applicable use cases oh yeah right? Yeah. Side of what it is you're trying to solve um, through the solution to a specific problem, but doing it in a way that is disconnected from, independent of mm. the specific problem you're trying to solve in a way that is more agnostic, more modular and, and right. open to the interpretation of the end user as a solution to other problems that are of a similar um, ilk. Yeah. I think the, the broader problem that's been in existence forever since radio broadcasting was doing interviews is the mix minus. I don't know if you're, anyone's familiar with that term, but basically take an input 
and an output and have two of those and have them cross each other. So like the output of one becomes the input of the other, the output of the first thing comes the input of the second. And you don't want, for example, your own voice to be recorded twice on two ends, basically do that, but then record it also and make sure it's not doubly recording and getting echoes and people's headphones. Um, that's the hard thing. I'm surprised that there's no real solution here to this problem simply because this is such a widespread problem across so many different industries right now. Mm -hmm. And every person who does anything with video conferencing, um, teleconferencing, multi-meeting, disconnected, and uh, remote work conferencing. Mm. Um, applications like Clubhouse, where you're putting a bunch of people together and doing like a virtual meeting that is external maybe to your core business, right? But also is related to business in general. There, there are so many end users that this applies to, and there are so many disparate solutions. Uh, it surprises me that nobody has focused on the, the two things that are most important here to pretty much all those people, which is they all desire to have a high quality professional sounding uh, result of, you know, from their voice input and the ability to take and extract the audio out and listen to it in either an isolated fashion or in a broadcast fashion. Mm -hmm. Nobody had a solution like that. I mean, Not an easy if, one. Let's play the widget game, right? If I had a little box that was this big, even something I could stick in my pocket that's small enough that it's not unwieldy, right? Can fit in my pocket, can easily go in my camera gear bag or anything like that. And that device has a crappy quality, but on its speaker, that's as good as it can be for the given size, right? To maximize portability and the, the eliminate the need for another set of external speakers in the event that I'm what I call in a pinch, right? I want to just be able to sit it down and use it as just like my JBL speaker that I carry with me to hotels when I travel, right? A, a little tiny version of that. There's tons of those on the market, right? And in it is the smaller, um, I'm sorry, the slightly larger than would be normal as a function of the increased quality of the mic, having an omnidirectional or a unidirectional mic built into this thing that is of much higher quality, right? But in a smaller format that is agnostic to what it's connected to, it can be connected to any Bluetooth uh, compatible, whether it's my PC or my smartphone or any device I have around, I can use it anywhere I go and have line level in and out on it, right? Mm -hmm. So if I want to drop a pair of headphones on it, I can do that with no problem, have a line level out. So if I want to plug it into my, uh, my, my speaker system on my desk, I can do that and have it become the external speaker, but all focused around the quality of the mic. Right. Mm. I mean, I don't care if the if the bit rate of the audio that I'm getting in my ears is slightly lower. I really don't care that much about that. I care more about sounding like I'm professional in the context of the people I'm speaking to, because the production quality of your voice when you're in a room in clubhouse speaking to a bunch of other people and you're frankly hawking your wares. If you sound like you're on a trash quality mic in a windstorm, it is diminishing your, their perception of value with respect to your ability to do whatever it is you say you're doing. No matter how disconnected it is from the service you provide or the, the thing of value that you're offering, that production quality diminishment inherently diminishes their perception of you. Yeah. What I'm the, not hearing is the ability to record. Where does that come in? Well, that would yeah, be the line out. That's, that's the that's, line out. Okay. It could be. You could drop be. it on any recorder you want. Now, again, if you wanted to build ability to record into it and put like a compact flash or a, an SD card, a standard SD mm -hmm. card in it, there's no reason you couldn't do that. The mm. audio is coming through the thing. It's just that's extra. The, that's the part that we didn't have solved. Okay. And I, I just I wanted to make that, sure. That's all nuance related to user interface, how it works. Mm. It should be extremely simple. I should be able to just reach over and push a button and it starts recording, right? Mm -hmm. I don't need a lot of user interface to be able to toggle through those. I'll do that later on an external device, which I'm going to do anyway. If I'm sure. the kind of person recording these, these things for later consumption or distribution, they're going on a PC at some point, no matter what. I don't need to be able to flip through what recordings I have on there. I just need to make sure it makes a clean file hierarchy yep. and make sure 
things are labeled by date or whatever. Um, so that when I push a light comes on, I know it's recording. There's no question mm. about it. Push it again, it turns off. It's that hmm. simple, right? And again, the audio stream is coming through it. it building in recording electronics to it is just a, another modular element that you could easily integrate. It ain't no thing, so to mm -hmm. speak. But again, I think most of the value proposition with respect to this product is the ability to get good, clean, professional quality audio at the lowest possible price point and find the point on the graph where those things cross, right? What is our cost to produce versus this level of perception with respect to the professional nature of the recording, right? And I, I think that there's probably a pretty low point on that graph where they cross. It's just that nobody's really focusing on that. All the products that have really good quality audio from a microphone standpoint, they have, like you're talking about the roadcaster, they have all these other features and functionalities built in that are not geared toward the minimization of cost, but rather the maximization of offering, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think where I landed in my head was not the connection to the mic. I'm starting from a place where I'm assuming the users have a mic that's connected to a computer or some recording oh. device and they have their phone and they want those two things to talk to each other. My solution was the dongle town, which we all live in now with iOS. And by the way, if you're using, or if we're creating a device that is inherently Bluetooth, right? For the transfer of digital audio, <laughs> it's Bluetooth. It can transfer files. Yeah. Yeah. You're recording True. on it. There's no reason you can't have the app that is paired to it on your phone that is talking to this thing, right? In the same way that you can just generally use the, the general Bluetooth settings to pair it as a, a, an IO audio device, you definitely could build an app that is related to the file sharing of the things on it. And then you could build the memory directly into it with no removable memory. I think that would be foolish because I think people want the ability to be able to just pop out a card and go with it. Mm -hmm. But if you have internal memory or a card that is external uh, memory plugged into it, you could totally build an app that allows you to manage your file structure of what's on that thing right there on your yeah. phone. So again, they have a device that is recording uh, audio IO um, in a high quality way and has the easiest, most agnostic interconnection to their whatever device they want to connect it to, right? Paired with the ability to manage the file structure and recordings right there on the phone. And for that matter, start and stop recordings. There's no reason if you're connected with Bluetooth that you can't send a command to start and stop recording, manage the file hierarchy that's on the device itself, et cetera. All that could be done from a paired app. And that actually adds a lot of value for you because then other things that we've not yet considered in terms of the management and interaction with the device can be built in later because you have an mm. app that has that two-way communication with the device. And again, we're not talking about an ultra complex device here. This is not landing a man on the moon. It's a function of the focus of what the highest quality elements are at, at mm -hmm. minimized cost. You're gonna give up some things, right? To get others where the, the focus of quality needs to be. And in this case, it's on ease of use, agnosticism to platform and device, and quality of the microphone awesome. audio. Remember mm -hmm. earlier when I said, make a list of the things that are important and then use that as your guide? We're doing that right now. Mm. These are the things we need a good audio engineer that understands the nuance of building a high quality mic at low cost. What existing components exist now in terms of MEMS microphones and things of that nature. Um, we need a uh, good electronics engineer to help us minimize the package. Also help us select an existing Bluetooth uh, module rather than try to build from scratch our own Bluetooth interface, because then you're talking about FCC testing and all kinds of other things that might be able to be minimized or avoided altogether at slightly higher cost by buying a package that is already FCC uh, approved, right? And integrating it into our electronics. Um, there's a variety of things that we could extrapolate from what we've suggested here um, in this, what is essentially a brainstorming session. We are doing, earlier when I said there's a thing before concepting, mm. we're doing that right now. And that's the research and comprehension phase. 
in the beginning of the project, before you ever put pen to paper on a concept, you do research and concepting. Research and concepting is when you figure out just in your head and in words, no pictures, okay? What this thing is, what it does, why it does it, how it does it, not from a technical standpoint, but how it does it from the perspective of and through the lens of the end user. How does it do this thing that they need it to do? How does it solve the problem? What are the features and functionalities that are core and which ones are most important? That is an ordered list. It's not just a list, it's an ordered list, right? What's most, what's least, what's not really important at all, but would be nice to have, right? All of these things happen in the research and concepting phase, which is the most important part of the entire project because it will drive everything okay. else that you do. And if you clearly are able to define it and more and most importantly, look at it through the lens of a finished product being used by an end user. You must create an avatar of the end user and it must be accurate enough that they are, I'm gonna digress and I'm gonna explain this because it's important for you and anybody listening because it's a part of what I do that I think gets skipped a lot. Huge firms do it, but I've never seen smaller firms and frankly, most firms I've, that I've come across don't do this. But the first thing I do in research and comprehension is to figure out who my end user is, right? That end user is obviously not one person. How often am I designing a thing for one person? But they are an amalgamation of a person, right? And so when you look at who's going to use this broadly, you can start to make a determination by boiling down all the key characteristics of that person, what's salient with respect to their characteristics, everything from their culture to their ethnicity to their geographic location to their, um, their paradigm on life, all the way down to physical characteristics. Are they young or are they old? Are they man or are they woman? Are they both? Is it pretty equally split? Are they large or are they small? All of these things that seem like very generalized characteristics that have nothing to do with it have everything to do with it. And until you can build what is either one or if necessary more because the range is too diverse to boil it down into one person, until you can build an avatar of that person, you cannot possibly look at a thing through their eyes and evaluate it before it ever exists, right? And if you can't evaluate it before it exists, you cannot guarantee that you're creating a thing that is optimally embodied. Isn't the overall goal here to create an optimal thing? Optimal is subjective, right? It is tempered by constraints of the real world and all of a given situation, as well as goals that you're trying to achieve. The definition of optimal is subjective. You have to temper it by constraints and goals. But it's subjective on the part of your end user, not you, but the person who will actually use this thing. This is a cart before the horse thing again. You've got to look at it through their eyes. And to do that, you have to know who they are. To know who they are, you have to amalgamate the wide spectrum of people that will use this thing into an avatar. And I can tell you right now, you already know how to do this. Every human knows how to do it. We do it inherently. Picture your mother right now in your mind. You can have a mental, completely virtual reality dialogue with your mother, and you can pretty accurately predict what she would say if you said a thing, how she would react, her body language, everything down to the emotions that she would feel, even though she's in your head and not real. You can predict it because you have throughout the course of your life, through the analysis of this person and the, the mental recording and experience with this person, you have built a mental avatar of them. We do it with everyone we know. And the better you know a person, the more accurate the avatar is. This is mm -hmm. one of the things that differentiates me from other developers, I think, because I have a personal strength in this. I can very rapidly build an avatar and do it in such detail that they are so real in my mind that I basically get paid to sit around and daydream. 
That's what I do is daydream. Because everything that I do as a function of the development of the product is monkey wrench work. Engineering, the drawings, the sketches, all those things are just the physical act of getting out of my head. What I figured out in the very beginning of the project is the optimal embodiment of the product as a function of the goals and constraints set forth by the imaginary end user who will eventually hold it in their hand. Before pen goes to paper, you should know what this thing is. You should be able to describe it on a piece of paper very accurately. Our work methodology starts with that. So I just want to jump in here and ask, I mean, because Lindsay and Derek, like many of our listeners, have an existing business and you probably know your avatars pretty strongly because of your current business. Are you designing this specifically for your current avatars that you already have? Definitely. Or is a whole new avatar? No, no, better, this is... You better step back and realize, though, just everything that we've just come to, which is that your avatar is probably much wider than you realize. Yeah, you it, the potential of it. Yeah, yeah. So many opportunities. It, it there. won't be. It won't be optimal if you build it around a flawed avatar. Does that make sense? Mm, or a sure. more constricted avatar. It may be optimal for them, but how much of the market are you missing out on? That are you, you leaving out? Oh, much interesting. We want to make recording audio easier, and now that social audio is a thing, we do the distribution of it to the right that's, people. So that's your starting point, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Starting point is this: who records and manipulates audio? Yep. Period. That's and it's start. not just podcasters anymore, which is why the Roadcaster Pro doesn't make sense. My apprentice, Chris, owns a wedding photography company. And he came to me a couple of years ago and said, I'm tired of the short life cycle of creation of wedding photography. I want something, I want to create things, but I want longer life cycle, more complex, more complicated creation. And I will come study under you to learn to do that. He previously studied under my former business partner, who is, in my opinion, one of the best photographers in the world. That being said, he still does ad hoc wedding shoots and proposals and things like that when people ask him or when he wants to do them. You can imagine this includes video, right? <laughs> photographers, especially independent photographers, are dependent upon this and frankly are using either total trash equipment or they are constrained by huge budgets that they can't really afford, right? The guy who's charging $50,000 for a weekend wedding shoot doesn't give a damn about the $600 for the, the audio equipment. Couldn't care less about it, right? But what is he, 1% of the target yeah. user base? Everyone else cares about the $600. If mm -hmm. you can make a thing that is even two-thirds as good as that $600 thing for half or less the price point, you just opened up your, your optimal avatar, your, your uh, applicable avatar to a much wider base of people. And thus, here we go with the capitalism. You just increased your revenue line. Because many more people that really want and need this thing that you had not even considered to be a target consumer for you, if designed properly, would have been a target consumer for you. Mm -hmm. There's so much to take from this into other products. For anyone listening, know, right? you know, you've just completely extrapolated from like one tiny idea into now you might even have like a line of products or a product that can serve millions of folks that you hadn't even considered when you started. Modularity, yeah. agnosticism, and intelligent design. Those are the things. Realize who your customer is and you will start to realize there are way more of them than you think there are. And the thing you're creating probably has applications, tangential applications that you have not yet even begun yeah. to think. And this is the value of someone who does, somebody like me that does what I do. They're going to tell you things that are such a massive increase in value by comparison to the cost of that, that when you recognize it, you're shoveling cash at them. I don't care. Take the money. You're <laughs> making 10 on every one I give you. 
This completely changed my mind, Derek, where I was like, well, Clubhouse could make change the rules tomorrow and now the thing is obsolete. But if you if we make the thing more useful than just solving that one problem, am I am I on the right track with that, Derek? And we talked about it. It's the mix minus problem that's been in existence forever. And there are complicated solutions of buying mixers that are crappy and by themselves and what they're you know why this are supposed to do. Really complex? I can tell you why this industry is overly complex. It's actually very common in similar industries. To, I'm talking about the audio industry. Do you audio know why specifically. Because all the people creating products and engineers, they don't have a problem with going, hey man, grab me a TRRS connector and a TRS connector and connect those together and plug yeah. it into the uh, USB adapter. And then let's drop this lightning connector on the phone. And then you can plug it into the mixer back here. And then you're going to want to line out to that. <laughs> that doesn't bother them. It doesn't begin to phase them. And so when they create a solution, they're like, oh, that's not a problem. That's a problem. If you want to sell to a large number of people, it needs to be simple. A mm -hmm. designer with intelligent design capability who looks at it through the end user's eyes and doesn't assume the end user to be me, the engineer, can create a solution that is inherently more transparent and simple to use. It's a basic principle of good design. I don't know if you're familiar with Theodore Roms, but good design should be easy to use. I just had a big aha as you were talking. So I think what has is happening is us creating Hello Audio and then the social audio explosion and just audio in general is having its like renaissance. But who typically uses audio things are like podcasters who nerd out about it, which is my husband, which is why we ended up making this thing. But now more people are using audio and they don't have those interests. And so they're musicians. Derek was a roadie for a long time. <laughs> so like he knows that, like, I just imagine, like I look at, we just watched a guy set up on at the restaurant and I was like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, it's so complicated. He's like, it's actually really complicated. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here being like, oh, audio is now becoming more accessible because of the apps and, you know, the advancements that are being made, but we're not meeting the main user who doesn't, like you said, know all those things. They're now using products like this. Company, How do you make it as easy as possible? There's a company that's a category king. There are many things about this company I don't like and some things I really, really love, but they do this. In fact, it's probably the thing that they do the best, in my opinion, from a design thinking standpoint. You all use them. You all use Apple. Yeah, yeah. People love Apple for a reason that they don't really understand. And the reason is that it is extremely intuitive. It is mm -hmm. oversimplified. And that has mm -hmm. been true all the way back to when Apple was making PCs in competition with the PC. When a PC was a thing, nobody called an Apple a PC, a Mac a PC. It was a Mac and a PC. And if you look at the interface, that is what the entire product was built around, the user interface. Mm -hmm. Much more simple. One button on the mouse much yeah. more simplified to the end that the end user does not have to think about the thing they're doing. They just do the thing they're doing. Hmm. You eliminate the unnecessary complexity. You make the entire experience and ease of use transparent. It's not about making the user see the, the ease of use. It's about making them not even think about the fact that it's easy or difficult to use. You create a thing that is purpose-built but agnostic to the person who's using it or the purpose for which it's used. And then you have a device that people fall in love with because hmm. it makes them feel like they can do a thing without the unnecessary pain and complexity required to do that thing. That's uh, Lindsay. It's exactly parallel to us building Hello Audio, looking at all the podcast hosts, oh, Lipson, yeah. Blueberry are just awful, awful experiences for a user. I think God bless them because for creating they the space. Pain, right? They yeah. cost pain. In but the effort to create a solution or solve a problem, they yeah. force you to experience pain yeah. in the process. Unnecessary things that could easily be either automated or designed around to make them transparent to the end user. But engineers don't do that. 
That's why engineers are not good designers. Everybody <laughs> has their strengths. And I think that you should use people for their given strengths and come out with the best overall end result. There's no been negation for engineers for a long time as a no physicist. <laughs> people who are good artists and who can imagine this user experience and, and the flow of things and the experience itself, most of those people are not very good engineers. They're not detail-oriented enough on the back end of things to come out with a technically feasible, low-cost, high-performing thing, right? But the, the personality traits and the characteristics that make up a good engineer don't necessarily make up a good designer and yeah. vice versa, right? You got to let people do the thing they're good at. Yeah. Some people use Hello Audio and they come out and like, I did not expect it to be that fast and that easy. It's like we're making the hardware version of like people have overcomplicated this because there's too many potential attachments Options. and every company makes hardware with all of the attachments. When literally with, all people want to do is plug in their phone or their laptop and record what's listen, happening. I don't, love, I don't love Wix, okay? But look at what Wix did to the internet. Instantly, you can go build a website. Yeah, yeah, Instantly. yeah. For nothing in a day, like nothing. And it may not be ultra optimized, from an engineering standpoint on the back end to drive traffic in, manage and track that traffic. All of those engineering details are lost on it, right? But from the standpoint of being able to create a beautiful website that people can come to instantly in a day, it's front loaded on the art side. It made it super easy and transparent for anyone to do, but it lost the engineering side, right? You still need WordPress to create a site that you're gonna drive millions of people to and properly track and monetize those people. Wix doesn't do that. It's getting better at it, but it's not, it's not great at it. You, you need both, you know, when you properly design a thing and you think about both of those things, the art and the science and math, and you blend them into a product, you come out with a product or a company or a brand that is driven by that design thinking, like Apple, who just murders the market, despite the many downsides of the particular brand or product that they offer, right? They still just murder the market. You can do the same thing, but this is where you have to come from. You have to come from the, the end user and they have to be the center of your universe, the mm. why of doing is the end user. You don't get their dollar if you're not doing the thing that solves their problem. So make them the center. I have so many questions about how much this would cost. Yeah, <laughs> We were down, we had a dongle and now yeah. there's this giant, <laughs> no, it's not that big, but very different. It went from dongle to like, oh my gosh, this could be phenomenal, but also this could be like the million dollar process. It really and could actually. Yeah. I mean, Bradley, are you able at all to like estimate what something like this, you know, for Lindsay and Derek, but also for listeners who are maybe thinking about dipping their toe into a, an area like this, what are we looking at as far as costs? And do you break it down into like this initial process that mm -hmm. you're enjoying right now on this podcast? Uh, would that normally have a big price tag attached to it? And then what are, are their phases or how does that all work? How do we price something like this out? When you go back, anybody listening to this, scrub back to where Alexa started asking about this and listen to how many times she said either price or cost. And tell me how many times during the course of that she said value, because those things are not the same. They are not the same thing. How many people buy Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Bugattis? However many that they make, mm. that's how many people buy them. And there are people on a list waiting to get them. There is nothing that car does for you that a Toyota Camry can't do for you, but there is. There's an intangible thing it does for you, right? That you want, that people want cost, price really and value are disconnected items i don't build based on cost of things i look at a project and i make an analysis and i will say i'll, I'll digress and say i'm different than most people okay i don't market i don't advertise i don't look for work i have never done any of those things never one red cent have i ever spent on marketing my website's hosted on wix <laughs> literally, literally i just took it down it's been up probably 
eight years, 10 years, the same damn thing on Wix. And it's just this corporate bleh, right? And it's because I don't care. I don't, I don't care if people find me there. They do inherently somehow still find me there, but I'm different than most people. Most firms like mine have a very strictured pricing structure. Many of them, I would say most of them are hourly rate based to some degree and flat rate based. So they've got some minimums and then they charge an hourly rate, okay? I'll preface and say how you make a determination about what the value of a thing is to you, anybody listening, that's on you and that's subjective, okay? My perception is one of a value-centric approach. I look at a thing and I make a determination on, yes, what kind of costs and resources will be involved as a baseline, right? But then in addition to that, what the value of that thing is that I'm creating for a person, right? If properly done, if I do what I say I will do, and if it meets this particular scope of work, I don't bill hourly. I bill on a flat rate. I put the onus on myself to make a decision on what the total cost cost in a dollar amount I'm going to charge is for this entire project. And here's the scope of work I'm going to provide. It is loosely written enough that things can deviate to some degree if we see ways to improve it or change things, but also tightly structured enough that I don't start out making a baseball for you and we end up making a Ferrari, right? It's got to be balanced between those things. There's a risk position there for both, both parties involved. The resources required for any given type of product, whether it's a rocket or a caliper, they're going to be drastically different, right? The types of engineering involved, like we talked about. The amount of time involved with respect to the research and comprehension phase, which I think is where all the value in what I do lies. Because frankly, if I did the research and comprehension phase perfectly, and in the end, I assessed and asserted what I believe the optimal embodiment of the product to be. Features, functionalities, ergonomics, aesthetics, what it does, how it does it, why it does it, who the end user is and why this in fact is optimal for that end user group. And we are 100% in alignment, you agree with me. And then I die and fall out of an airplane, okay? You could literally take that to anyone else to go do the monkey work, right? It's just engineering at that point, right? A little bit of art, but mostly engineering. I personally, make an assessment on what I think the value of this thing is. And I temper that against how badly I want to bring it to market. And I find a number that neither of us are happy with. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I want the dollar figure that I'm charging you to be a number you don't want to pay, but you're willing to. And I want it to be a number that I want to be more, but I'm willing to do it at that price point as a function of how badly I think this thing needs to exist in the universe. How badly I think I want to work to create this thing that will improve the lives and experiences of others. And I'm sorry if that's super woo. In case you can't tell by looking at me, I'm a little bit woo, okay? So <laughs> that being said, that being said, for those listening that are gonna go out and find a firm to work with, okay? Whether it's me or somebody else, mm -hmm. I think you really have to assess A, ability to pay, period. No mm -hmm. matter how much you wanna play woo, if you don't have X, you can't pay X, right? Ability to pay leveraged against the value proposition of the thing this person is creating. Do you believe that they can do what they're saying they can do? And do you believe that their ability to create it will achieve that optimal embodiment that you're looking for? And what is the value of that to you? If the value of that over a, even a year or a two year, or a three year, all the way up to profitability, however long that takes, three days, whatever it is, if you launch on Kickstarter, raise a million dollars in four hours. If you paid me $250,000 and you raise a million dollars in the first week of the Kickstarter campaign, are you really complaining? If I came to you today and said, give me $2, I'll give you 10 back tomorrow, and you believe me, wouldn't you give me the $2? Wouldn't you ask me how many more $2 you can give me, right? So it's a function of the value of the thing that you're creating tempered against ability to pay. My particular framework for that is to assess the time, resources, effort, energy, and 
just general work that's going to go into creating a thing over a given time period. And then I break down a proposal. And by the way, anybody doing this, you should have a proposal from a firm that explains exactly what they're giving you and how they're going to do it. My work methodology is broken down. My proposals are 20 damn pages long because I break down exactly what I'm going to do, both agnostically from your product and in some to every degree possible, um, specific to your product in a scope of work that denotes some of the things I've already identified in much the same way that we've done on this podcast. I would analyze, I would take time to analyze and assess and do what is kind of a mini research and comprehension phase. What do I think about this? What things does this thing need to be embodied by? Features and functionalities. How can it add value to the lives and experiences of other people? I do that for free because I won't work on it if I don't believe I can add a substantial amount of value beyond the dollar amount I'm going to stick on there. If I don't believe I'm providing substantial value or that the thing I'm creating is not going to represent a larger value proposition for the end consumer than what they're going to be expected to pay for it, I simply will not work on it period. And if you're hiring somebody that's willing to do that, you should be looking elsewhere, period, because they're only there for your paycheck and that's it. Okay. Find somebody who's as passionate about working on the thing as you are and wants to. Mm-hmm. I can give you some broad numbers um, for kinds awesome. of products that I charge. I typically for an end to end project, this is assuming that nothing has been done and I'm going to start from scratch. And I'm going to tell you through all those phases, what this product is, what it does, how it does it. And work until we are aligned in agreement on that assertion, right? And then go about creating that thing as we've defined it. For mechanical objects, um, consumer products that are like plastics and metals and not technology integrated objects, I tend to find that it's somewhere in all said and done, all the way up to the point, by the way, it's, it's key to understand what's included here, all the way up to the point that you're ready to turn a key. You make a phone call and you say, Bradley, we need to start manufacturing. We need to make 100,000 units. Kickstarter just finished. We sold 100,000 units. We need to make 100,000 units. And you can do that. You just call me and we start manufacturing. All the way up to that point, inclusive of the work methodology I mentioned, for mechanical objects, you know, consumer products, kitchen gadgets you know, that are non-technology integrated, that kind of thing, plastics, metals, simplistic things, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 dollars to $125,000 end to end. Um, and the only thing that that pricing does not include is the prototyping cost. Because until mm-hmm. we actually engineer a thing all the way from all that beginning prerequisite work through engineering, engineering is the time when you blueprint and create shop drawings and bills of materials and figure out what the actual nuts and bolts of this thing are going to be and then document them in a way that you can hand that document to any professional producer of physical things and have them be able to build it without talking to me. If they have to call me to build from those plans, I have not done my job right, right? I can't know what the cost of building that thing is with any degree of certainty until we're through the engineering, right? So the only thing that's not inclusive in my flat rate project bids is the cost of each round of physical prototype. Now, the interesting thing is that most firms that's a profit item for them, right? They put a big markup on it. I don't. I charge for the thing that I do with this and put it on paper. And the build out of the physical prototype is just a prove out of that thing for me. And so I charge a small markup generally, but not much. So the overall cost of building those prototypes through a few iterations is not usually such a large cost. It's negligible in the big picture of a project. You know, if it costs $10,000 to make four rounds of prototypes of this kitchen appliance, who gives a shit if the whole project was $130,000 or $140,000? Like it's negligible in the grand scheme of things. And that's what I try to tell people. Unless I see something in the beginning that I think might cause a big problem, if you have some um, requirement, a constraint, 
it needs to be gold plated. And I know that in the beginning, hey, that's going to be an expensive prototype one off, right? Or if you need me in this project, even though it's a simple device to do something extremely innovative for which there is no real way to build it yet, and we have to figure that out, then you might see a much larger prototyping cost. But generally, although the prototyping per round cost is not inclusive in the flat rate, it's usually negligible outside of certain, you know, ex um, exigent circumstances. So just to re-encapsulate that, I charge a flat fee. Mechanical objects is what I started with, 75 to 125, 150, somewhere in that neighborhood, depending on the complexity of the object and the amount of time and resources I think it takes. Then if you step up in complexity and you start adding technology back in, um, and I, I usually kind of segment it with there's electronics and technology built into it, but without a comprehensive user interface, right? So a piece of electronics and a blender, for example, where it's intelligent, not just an on off button, right? But intelligence of some kind built in, but without the complexity of having to build out the user interface, that would be kind of the next step in the complexity of things. And that's usually gonna take it from like the high end of the, the first, you know, mechanical things like 125, 150, up to, again, depending on the complexity, somewhere between two and 300,000. And then if you have full on user interface, which would be the next step up where the user is interacting with this thing, or you have a massive kind of cloud backend where data is being amassed and stored, then you start looking at, you know, mid range six figures, four to 500,000 and up. Um, and those things from a time standpoint, a simple mechanical object will generally take somewhere between four to eight months to work it to the point where it's ready to manufacture if you do it properly and you don't hit any kind of unexpected snags um somewhere between eight to 14 months in that range for mid-range technology-based things and then i usually tell people if there's a complex user interface you should expect it to be somewhere between like 10 and 12 months to like even 14 or 16 months and here's the thing those are conservative right you may go much much faster than that it really depends on the nuance of your particular product how much of it is kind of off the shelf so to speak things that we know you can say i'm replicating this website in terms of the functionality that's going to be much simpler than we want to go with a whole new from the ground build because everything else is wrong in the market for this right so it's going to range but high five figures low six figures simple products consumer products you add technology, add another 50 to 100,000. You add front end where there's user interface going on or there's complex back end with like web or cloud, um, add another 100,000 and up to another several hundred thousand. Um, I'm not even going to get into if you want to design a vehicle, for example, because then you start talking about regulatory and all kinds mm -hmm. of things that the costs are completely unpredictable without specifics on what the product is because those, those can range drastically. Um, a medical device can be a very simple thing, but the regulatory can cost you 10 times more than the product development. A pill and the chemical formulation inside can be a very simple thing. Getting it past the FDA, not a simple or cheap thing. Can take years and millions. The range is huge. Really the key here is, again, value proposition, right? If you're sitting down and saying, if we had, this is not a hard thing to do if you're a business owner. If you have a thing that you believe multiple millions of people that you can reach and know how to reach them want, and you know what your generalized target manufactured and retail cost is, you can do a very simple math problem and see what the value proposition is. If the quote you're getting is coming back at a quarter of your annual revenue, right? As a projection, to me, that's a no brainer. If somebody offers me two and promises to give me 10 the next day back, I'm gonna do it all day long. 
very subjective for the individual person. Lindsay and Derek, I mean, I don't know if you have a long list of questions or just a couple that are at the top of your list right now, but is there anything else that in this conversation, at least, as you start to explore this idea that is at top of mind for you? Specifically for you guys' product, I probably should have encapsulated that simpler. Specifically for you guys' product and what you're wanting to do, the microphone side of it is the most difficult part. The rest Mm -hmm. of it is like things have been done that are similar, so it's not really unpredictable. The microphone part and getting that just right and also the problem, the two-way problem that we were discussing that's a problem on everything, coming up with an engineering solution to that might be complex. I think that you guys are probably looking somewhere in the mid-150 to 200-ish range to come up with something ready to go to market somewhere in that neighborhood. And that's everything, everything you need, you know, everything at the end, you turn a key and you go to market. So is that like the first, um, like sold things also like, let's say we are like make 500 of them. That also includes that or no, not the actual making of that. You make that's you're ready to make a phone call to me and tell me to make things. That's the got it. But you would have a prototype, right? But you would have the prototype and everything else. have multiple rounds of prototypes. And again, I don't know what that cost is, but for a thing like what you're doing, a fairly simple electronics product like that, prototypes are not terribly expensive. I would say if you budgeted an additional five to 10%, that would be more than enough to cover even four or five rounds of prototypes. In terms of the overall cost of the project, electronics, as long as they're not ultra novel, things like what you're doing, they're not super expensive to produce. Now, don't get me wrong. You go to a prototyping house where their entire business model is building one-offs. They're not doing design for you. That's expensive. They're going to charge you 10,000 around. Yeah. Round. That makes sense. I try to make money on that. So it's just a balance there, you know? By the way, let me just be super clear. You can get done what you need to get done cheaper than I will charge you for it. I am not, nor do I try to be the lowest cost provider in the market because I don't care about cost. That's yeah. not my focus. So really for me and when, consu- when when customers come to me and we, I believe there's an alignment between me and a customer and we want to create the same thing together and I see value in it for the end consumer, not just for you, but for the end consumer, if we decide to work together on it, I'm very straightforward. Like you can get this cheaper. If cost is your driving factor immediately, you know, I am not the person you want to be talking to. If you believe that there is value in what I do and the way I do it, and you believe that what you will derive from that at the end as having a higher value than the ultimate cost of the thing, then that's a, that's a premise that we can start from. Totally. Derek, do you have any questions? No, I, yeah, I'm excited to explore Bluetooth. I hadn't looked into it in much detail, but it could be a solution. I, I still got stuck on Doggle Town, and so Derek <laughs> likes tinkering. So you, yeah, I'm, I can I'm, tell yeah. he's you a should tinkerer. Come to the studio sometime and play around. We got prototype everything here. Everything you could possibly oh, do. To create Where are you? Here. Actually, that's the question. Where are you we're in the world? We're uh, Dallas. We're based here, Dallas. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Thirty minutes from the airport. Yeah, not far. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we have people coming out of the studio that fly into town all the time. I bet. More than one yeah. time at time. Cool. Cool. So awesome. You have given us so much to think about. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's worth mentioning too, just in case it's not clear. When I say I'm end to end, I mean, I also handle the manufacturing. I will imagine it, create it, prototype and test it in my own facilities. Then I will also, once it's prototyped and ready to manufacture and you go to launch, uh, not find, I I am partnered with own and or on contract somewhere in that range, uh, dozens of factories around the world. Got it. Uh, Mainland, mainland China, uh, other parts of Asia. Uh, Mexico, America, and the US. I have either partnerships, in some cases I own actual equity position and or have contract uh, agreements with a number of factories that make everything you can imagine. So there's really no concern about that whole finger pointing thing. Like I'm gonna manage for you end to end. So yeah, just so that you're aware. 
Cool. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you all so, so much. I feel like this could be a six hour episode. For uh, sure. I awesome. learned a lot. Thank you. I yeah, learned definitely. a lot. That was really awesome. And if, if somebody knows of this dongle in existence right now and I just missed yeah, it somehow, please let me know because I want to buy it. Like I've, I've been <laughs> you know, digging. I think I bought every actually, dongle on Amazon. <laughs> that's actually really funny because most customers who come to me, I, I will say most customers, most people who come to explain an idea to me, whether I'm sitting at a bar having a drink and they know me and they're talking to me about it, it's out there. My first assumption is always it's out there. There are like 9 billion humans alive on this planet right now. Do you know how many ideas a day 9 billion humans have, right? If only 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of those ideas come to life in the form of a product developed, that's a lot of products, man. And that's just right now. We've been manufacturing all mass things for a hundred years. So definitely if you have an idea, go research and see what's out there. That's not to say that that should inherently um, turn you off to the mm-hmm. idea of making yeah. something. Go order them. Everything that is even remotely competitive to what you're making that offers features and functionalities that you think are uh, core to what you're making, that's what we're going to do. When we do the project, we're going to order in every competitive unit that is even remotely like yours, and we're going to mm-hmm. tear it apart. We're going to play mm-hmm. with it. We're going to use it. We're going to experience it, and we're going to deconstruct it and look at it because you don't want to reinvent the wheel, but you also want to improve it to the point where it makes sense for our end user. And that's what I'm doing. I got my little razor blade knife to cut, cut the wires and bought things. an <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what the hell's going on inside them. <laughs> and yeah. why don't they work? Okay. <laughs> Thank you all so much for your time. This was an absolute treat. And uh, I know our listeners are going to learn a whole lot from this episode as well. And Derek and Lindsay, I would love to circle back with you and see where this project ends up. And if you decide mm-hmm. to move forward and if you end up working with Bradley, uh, maybe we'll do like a quick post episode later That'd on. That'd be fun. If you guys want to reach out, we can do a much more personalized call and talk about anything that's IP related. Cool. Thank you. All right, guys. This conversation with Bradley, Lindsay, and Derek was packed with value. There was a lot of information shared, and I loved it. I hope you did, too. I learned so much from this episode. So today, I invite you to think about this. If you're thinking about creating a new product, what skill sets and resources will you need? Who will you need to bring this idea to life? Is there already a good solution to the problem that you're trying to solve? Is your solution that much better? How well do you know your end users' real problems? How can you get to know them better? And lastly, what other applications are there for this thing that you want to create? What other problems can it solve? Did you know that the inventor of Post-its was just a guy in a lab who was trying to create a better adhesive, but he saw the opportunities to solve hundreds of other problems with his glue, and the rest is Post-it history. Thank you so much for being here today. I can't wait for you to meet the rest of the incredible entrepreneurs who are joining me on the podcast. I'll be releasing new episodes every Wednesday, so be sure to follow the podcast on whichever app you use so that you don't miss out on insights, inspiration, and big ideas. Do you know someone who could really use these nuggets of knowledge? Take a quick screenshot, post it on social, and tag a friend or two. Or just text it straight to them. That's really why I created this podcast share this expertise and peer-to-peer support with you and all the other entrepreneurs that need it. So if you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful for a quick five-star rating and review on whatever app you're listening on. It'll go a long way to helping me serve and support even more entrepreneurs. Thanks again for joining me. I can't wait to connect with you again next week. See you soon.